A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimsbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the Skizal. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored anonymously. Lili Nishmas, the Kleisenberger Rebbe, Rabbi Kassil, Yehuda, Ben Svi Hirsch, Ben Svi Hirsch, and Befraim Fischel Ben Schleimer Hershkowitz, who was a Dayan in Kleisenberg and later on lived in Williamsburg after the war until his passing on Bayes Sivan Tufshin Ein Zion. His upcoming um, tomorrow, I believe, is the 32nd day of the Eimer and is a very special day. It's the anniversary of the Kloisenberger Rebbe's uh, liberation, or Kassilu de Halberstam, the Kloisenberger Rebbe's liberation from the Nazis at the end of the war. So it's a very significant day, and that's why we're going to speak a little bit about this uh, amazing person. Of course, um, there's really a lot to say about him, so hopefully um, I'm, I'm calling it part one just because I have a hope that one day we'll get to, to, get to tell more of his story, and uh, hopefully there'll be some uh, uh, eager... Uh, um, listeners out there who would like to sponsor future episodes on the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Really, really a unique and amazing person. Um, his life story and what he went through during the war and then his rebuilding after the war and his really uh, uh, forging a, an independent path um, in his uh, his method of rebuilding. There's, just, there's also an enormous amount of sources that has been written about the Kleisenberger Rebbe, which is also quite unique. Um, among you know, just because it, you know, it's testimony about how popular he was. There's, there's a safe uh, book in Hebrew, Lapid Eish. There's an English biography. There's uh, Doctor Rabbi Doctor really Tamir Granot uh, wrote a, an, a fabulous uh, dissertation on the Kleisenberg Rebbe, one of the few Rebbes in Jewish history who uh, there is a doctoral dissertation written about him. Of course, the earlier ones, the Baal Shem Tev and a few others, have on him, but in modern times, uh, recently, um, Menachem Karen Kertz wrote on the Satmarov. Also, so he uh, was privileged to have a doctoral dissertation written about him, but the Kleisenberg is uh, quite unique in that regard. There's also a documentary film uh, written, uh, made, produced about the Kleisenberg Rebbe, also unique. You know, which happens to be fantastic, uh, highly recommended. I saw it in Hebrew, but I imagine that it's available with English subtitles as well. And he's, uh, like I said, one of the most amazing and influential uh, leaders of post-war rebuilding of Jewish life. Before I get into the 
Kleisenberger Rebbe, I guess it's sort of in a distant way related to this, but in current events, I got to make note of it. Um, uh, President Joe Biden just announced the other day that uh, the United States is recognizing, or the president at least is recognizing, that the Armenian genocide uh, in at the end of World War One by the Ottoman Turks is actually a genocide, uh, which is funny because us historians knew that it was a genocide quite a bit of time already, you know, way before, I guess, the politicians. It takes them a, a long time to recognize historical truths, or they like to sacrifice historical truth and do some revisionist history in honor of present-day politics and diplomacy. But uh, it is a very significant event, and it's very important also that it's recognized the Armenian genocide as a genocide. Um, and it actually has quite significance to Jewish history. And, and as Jews, we should be very, uh, um, you know, be looking at at this uh, event as as very as a very positive development as well. Um, Hitler once, in a speech to his generals in the 1930s, when talking about his plans about world conquest and his disregard for um, for the rule of law and and of human life. Um, he actually said explicitly, who speaks about the Armenian genocide today? In other words, the, the fact that it was unspoken about and that it was uh, not, not recognized as a genocide in the 1930s already uh, gave him an impetus to be able to carry out and perpetrate his crimes, uh, um, which obviously took place against the Jews and others during the Holocaust. Um, so the fact that uh, that it is recognized and you know of course uh, to the delight of holocaust deniers everywhere worldwide the state of israel still does not recognize uh, the armenian genocide as a genocide so we hope uh, that that changes sometime uh, as well so maybe we'll talk about genocide and and uh, genocides in history and the armenian genocide and how that relates to the holocaust and jewish history perhaps we'll save that for another time in another episode but um, let's get back to the Kleisenberger Rebbe, who, of course, was a you know a survivor of the Holocaust, uh, so it's somewhat related. But he was a very beloved figure. Uh, everyone, everyone seemed to love him. Uh, Hasidic Jews loved him as a Rebbe, as a Hasidic Rebbe. Um, you know, the he was a great Torah leader and a scholar and. Um, Holocaust survivors. He was like a father to Hungarian Holocaust survivors, Polish Holocaust survivors. Um, in the yeshiva world, he's also very popular because he was a tremendous uh, Paisik and a huge Talmud Chacham, and he wrote quite a few sfarim of his uh, halachic responsa, the Divra Yatziv. He also established the Mifal Hashas program, which I'm going to get to. Um, so in the yeshiva circles, he's popular as well. In in uh, and in, 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 then you go into other, other, uh, another circle, modern Orthodox circles, because he modified his stance on the state of Israel, although we'll get to exactly what that modification was. It's really not simple at all. It's very nuanced um, on his, his stance on the state of Israel and Zionism. So then all of a sudden he's popular in other circles as well. And of course everyone across the board sees him as a Holocaust hero and his strength and fortitude both during the Holocaust despite the losses that he sustained and the suffering that he endured and of course his efforts in rebuilding in the immediate after aftermath of the war and uh, throughout uh, the remainder of his life. Um, so he's uh, universally uh, beloved. Um, Rev. Yukasil, well, almost universally, we'll see that there was uh, one dispute he had with 
with a certain faction uh, in the in the Hasidic world. Afterwards, we'll get to that as well. Um, so Rabbi Kassil Yehuda Halberstam, who was known in his later years as the Tzanz Kloisenberg Rebbe, a combination of both Kloisenberg, where he was the town rabbi or a rabbi of a a certain faction of the community in Kloisenberg before the war, and he combined that with Tzanz, where he was a scion of the Tzanz dynasty, obviously he was Halberstam, so he combined the two. And there's really three stories of his life. One is pre-war, he was a a prominent uh, rabbi in Transylvania before the war. And then there's during the war, the experiences that he endured and suffered uh, during the Holocaust and how he he uh, was able to, um, you know, rise up to, to the challenges that he faced and, and really inspire others as well. And then there's the post-war, the rehabilitation and the rebuilding of, uh, of himself and his followers and, and, the, uh, and the world that he came from. And each one is a story. And so, I guess, like I said, we'll definitely need to be more parts to the story. So hopefully we'll have the opportunity to have uh, future episodes devoted uh, to the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Now it's the anniversary of his liberation, so maybe we'll have for his yard site or some other time as well. So um, he was also unique. And in fact, he was one of the only great Hasidic Rebbes who went through the camps. Most great Torah leaders in general um, and, 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 uh, and, uh, and Hasidic Rebbes in particular were killed. Uh, almost none of them survived. There were a handful who were able to escape. Uh, just a just a few, very few. Um, but then there's a third category of the ones who did not escape, and they actually went through the camps and and were able to survive. That that's extremely rare. There's almost none. Of course, the Blues of a Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Spear, is a famous exception. He went through from the beginning to end. He was actually in Poland. Um, um, so he went through, you know, actually much longer, six years of, of going through it. He's also an amazing story for another time. Um, but the Kleisenberger Rebbe is very unique in, in that regard. Um, there's, I think that even with all the sources that are available, I think that still we need a a proper biography still needs to be written. I think the, the several ones that are out there, they're still, I don't know if they're completely comprehensive. I think he deserves more. So maybe uh, we'll have a writer that will step up uh, one day to that challenge as well. He was born in the Galicia town in Rudnik, um, which is a very famous town in in the Tsans dynasty. The Devrechaim himself was a rabbi there uh, for a period of time. This is actually was his first rabbinical position. Um, so he was born, his father, the Kleisenberg Rabbi Kassil Yehud Halberstam's father was Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Halberstam, who was a son of Rabbi Baruch of Garlitz, who I spoke about in a recent episode, who was a son of the Divrei Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Halberstam the Tzanzer. Um, so, so this Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Halberstam was the Rudnikarov. He was a rabbi in, 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 in this town, like other members of the Halberstam family before him. And he passed away. Uh, when the future Kleisenberger Rebbe was young, uh, so he was a, he grew up as an orphan, um, and he marries at quite a young age, which is common in in, in those type of families at the time. Uh, he marries the daughter of Reb Chaim Tzvi Teitelbaum in Hungary, which was also common. The Halberstam and Teitelbaum families intermarried many many times over in several different generations. I've spoken about that in the past as well. And this Reb Chaim Tzvi Teitelbaum was the Atzechayim of Sigit. Um, and he's the older brother, of course, of the Satmarov. So by this marriage, the Kloisenberger Rebbe became a nephew 
to the Satmarov Rav Yelish Teitelbaum, which would have a significant, uh, uh, be, be of significant uh, uh, importance later on in his life. He receives smicha, again, still while still as a teenager. I try to think about sometimes what I was doing as a teenager, and I think about people like the Kleisenberger Rebbe, who got full smicha when he was like 15 or 16, um, from Meir Arik, one of the greatest rabbis in Galicia at the time, and others, other rabbis too. And he studied and was influenced by quite a few different uh, rabbis in Poland um, and in Hungary, um, among them Meir Chil Halstok, the Ostrovce Rebbe, the Minchas Lazar of Munkach, and in his great uncle, or the Kleisenberg Rebbe's great uncle, Reb Shulam Lazer of Ratzefert, the Divrei Chaim of Tzanz's youngest son, who I also had an episode, episode dedicated to recently. So there was the town of Kleisenberg, which had several different names in Romanian. It was Kosovar, and hung, hung, Hungarian, it was Cluj, dependent on the borders. But the German name, when it was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was Kleisenberg, and that's how the Jews referred to it, by its German name, and less by its Hungarian or Romanian names, uh, even though when he became the rabbi there, it was already in Romania at this time. It's an area, a district called Transylvania, and the borders changed quite often in that area. Um, so the, the rabbinate there, there was a the mainstream Orthodox uh, community, and the rabbi there for many, many years had been a fellow by the name of Ramosha Glasner. And later on, his son uh, succeeded him as uh, in the rabbinate there, so it was the Glasner family. And there was a separatist, smaller community, which called themselves the Sephard community, which was a Hasidic, uh, more extreme. They didn't like that Rabbi Glasner was Zionistic and considered more modern, and they separated and had a smaller community. They appointed him as the rabbi when he was still in his low 20s. He's already a rabbi of a prestigious uh, community. Um, so he was not really a Hasidic rabbi pre-war, although in, in the later years, right before the war, he did have certain customs as a Hasidic rabbi would have. He was more of a rabbi of a community for 16 years. He had a yeshiva there in Kloisenberg. He was a rabbi in Rosh Yeshiva in this yeshiva. He sat on the Bezdin. He was a very popular paisik for the whole district there in Transylvania, which was then in Romania, and then when the war began in Hungary. So the war begins, and in Till the Nazi invasion in 1944, ostensibly they're still safe, but since he was officially Polish, uh, um, so he was already in danger. Many of the Polish Jews in, in Hungary were deported early on in the war. And there was a famous massacre in Kamenitz-Podolsk, a very tragic story. Um, and he was spared from that in a miraculous. He was hiding in Budapest. Then he came back to, to Kleisenberg, and he was not deported until the Nazis invaded later on in the war. And he is uh, he's deported first to the Hungarian labor brigades, um, which many uh, uh, middle-aged Jewish males in Hungary were deported to. Um, his wife and children stayed behind. They eventually were deported to Auschwitz, and his wife and he had he had eleven children. His, his wife and all his children were killed, and most of them right away in Auschwitz. He had one son who uh, died of typhus right at the end of the war, right at the end, or maybe even after, right after liberation. And unfortunately, he was the only survivor for his from his entire family, from his community. He he lost everything that he had uh, during the war. He was deported from the labor brigades to Auschwitz, Birkenau, and he was there for several weeks. And then from there, he was sent, incredibly enough, to Warsaw, to the capital of, of Poland, which you're talking about the summer of 1944. It's a year after the Warsaw Ghetto, up, over a year, well over a year after the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, well over two years after the Great Deportation from the Warsaw Ghetto. 
So here he's coming to a completely destroyed Warsaw Ghetto. There's literally nothing. It's rubble. And he and other Jews who were deported there are to this small concentration camp that's set up on the ruins of the Warsaw Ghetto to clean it up, to basically to uh, gather up the bricks and, and, and they sold the, the Nazis sold them to Polish uh, contractors. And uh, that, was, that was the labor, uh, forced labor that he was to do. And I always think about it. Uh, I think it's just my imagination. This is not a, in any way a historical uh, fact, but... but here you have a young Hasidic rabbi who grew up in Galicia and uh, he became later a rabbi in Hungary and he's about to rebuild the, the Hasidic and Torah world uh, in the United States and in Israel after the war. And he's, and he's sitting here, he lost his family and he's sitting on the ruins of Warsaw. And the Warsaw was the capital of the Jewish world before the war where all the great rabbis of Poland had lived and were killed and uh, deported from and what was going through his mind? He's confronting the complete annihilation of Polish Jewry. And this is the first time he was exposed to it. He, when, he's, when he and the other Jewish slave labor in Warsaw are going through the bricks that they're, that they're gathering up, they find bunkers. They find even the bodies of Jews who had been hiding in the bunkers the year before. They're literally confronted face-to-face with the annihilation of Polish Jewry. And I always think about the symbolism of that, that he's, he's, he's uh, encountering that, he's confronting that, that destruction in Warsaw right there, uh, um, uh, and how symbolic that might be. From there, he's led on a death march uh, among with other, uh, you know, as interned uh, prisoners uh, to Dachau concentration camp in Germany, and from there he's sent to Mildorf, uh, where he worked in. He was forced into slave labor, backbreaking slave labor, and loading coal onto miners' trains. And uh, he was there for quite a bit of time, for eight or nine months, um, in in this uh, terrible slave labor. And from there, another death march until he's finally liber- liberated by U.S. troops uh, at the war's end. There's a lot to say about his uh, time uh, during the war, which uh, we'll hopefully uh, get to in, in future episodes. Just a few points I want to make. One is there's an audio testimony of him. Uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of ways to make up stories about people, uh, about Rebbes, about regular people during the Holocaust, not during the Holocaust. But here we have him giving a testimony on audio and speaking for himself and expla- saying exactly what he did. And, and therefore, we know that every single word is true. Uh, he says about the fact that he was went through, and we count the amount, of, he was in the labor brigades, he was in Auschwitz, he was in the in Warsaw, he was in Dachau, he was in Mildorf, and uh, and then he was on these death marches. That's four or five different camps uh, that he's in, um, and it's over the course of over a year that he's under this this terrible these terrible conditions. And he says that he never ate non-kosher food. He never ate treif uh, during that time, and uh, it was a very very difficult. In the labor brigades, he said it was a little easier. Uh, it was Hungarian labor brigades. It wasn't under direct Nazi uh, uh, um, camps. But then he's sent to Auschwitz, and what's he going to do there? And he resolved that he's not going to he's not going to do it. And it was a very strong challenge. He said it was not easy. He almost he almost gave in. He was starving. There was nothing to eat. He said it's the first time he arrived. It was Friday, and they were giving out some food, and he 
felt that it wasn't kosher, so he didn't eat it. He sat on the barracks in in the in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, in, 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 in the in the barracks that he was in. He sat on the bunks in the barracks he was in, and he starved. And uh, that night was Shabbos, and again he didn't eat. And the next morning he's he's weak. He can't move. And then and he's not sure what he what should he do. It's, it's it's literally his life is at risk. Maybe he should eat just to stay alive. And and so all of a sudden someone says to him, "Is the Kloisenberger Rebbe in this barrack?" And he got very scared because if they singled out rabbis, then that that could only you know foretell uh, evil and danger. And and you know they knew that they would single out rabbis to be killed, to be tortured, to be set aside. And he was very nervous. And uh, someone came in and called him to the front of the barracks. And someone there said, you're the Kloisenberger Rebbe. And he says, uh, he says, yes, I am. He said, he's your uncle, the Kshana Varov from, from Galicia. He's shocked. How does he know that my uncle was the, was the Kshana Varov? How does he know who I am? How does he know that I'm here? And he says, I've brought you some bread and marmalade, a type of jelly. It was a large... A piece of bread it was almost like a loaf of bread and a, a significant portion of jelly, and he couldn't believe it. And then the guy walked away, and he never saw him again. He never received anything from him again for the rest of his time in Auschwitz. And he describes that before he was called out, before this happened, he had been filled with doubt, and he started crying. And he said he didn't often cry during these situations. And he started crying out to Hashem, and he said, "Hashem, what do you want me to do? I'm trying so hard." not to eat Trafe. He said, I lost everything already. I'm beaten. I'm weak. I lost my family. I lost my community. I lost everything. The one thing I want to do is still eat kosher. Can you allow me to keep on doing that? Can you give me the strength to be able to still do that? And then right after that, this happens. And he makes kiddish on this bread, Shabbos afternoon in Auschwitz. And he, and he says that this is a sign from heaven that Hashem is going to help me out. God is going to help me and assist me in my endeavor, in my goal of not eating any trafe during the time that I'm in the camp. And that's what gave him that resolve. And he says, that's what I did. For the rest of the time that I was there, I did not eat non-kosher food, which is an amazing statement. And literally, if I would not have heard him in his own voice say it in audio, I don't know, I would have had my doubts. It's very hard to, you know, I've studied the Holocaust so long and I understand how difficult and how literally impossible it was, um, but then you hear him say it. Um, so he's liberated and he's, he, he, he comes, uh, he ends up in, in Feldafing, the, uh, displaced persons camp, um, that uh, the United States military establishes, and later on he's in Farenwald, where it becomes the center of his activities, a very large DP camp. He actually meets uh, uh, General Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who uh, came to Farenwald. He actually came on Yom Kippur, actually, and, the, the, and, he, and since he was the leading rabbinical figure and one of the Jewish leaders in the camp, so he was to meet Eisenhower, and they had baked a special challah that they, that they presented to him as a gift, and they thanked him for being the representative of the U.S. Army to liberate them from the Nazis and from all that they had in, suffered and endured, and he actually uh, met with the Rebbe on Yom Kippur afternoon. He, the Rebbe said he's not going to go and meet him until after they finish his prayers on Yom Kippur, and Eisenhower scheduled that he would only come at a later time to be able to accommodate the Rebbe's schedule. Um, and in, in fact, the one who translated for Eisenhower between the Rebbe and Eisenhower was the very 
very famous uh, Orthodox Jewish officer in the in the U.S. Army, Lieutenant Mayor Birnbaum, um, who wrote a book about his experiences many years ago, and he was he was a translator, and he describes many of he was, spent quite a bit of time in Fernwald with the Kleisenberger Rebbe. And uh, and he actually has a, a very humorous story there. Also, he had a his his sergeant uh, Birnbaum's uh, sergeant. He was an officer. He's a first lieutenant at this point. He had been promoted, um, and uh, and and he had a, his sergeant and driver was an, an American, a Native American named Rojo, and and uh, Rojo knew his officers' uh, kosher needs, and he had cooked. Food for Birnbaum throughout the military campaigns they had been since Normandy in in uh, in his uh, in his in his um, uh, his his helmet in his field helmet. Uh, that's how he cooked food, and he knew how he needed only kosher food, and he knew that he cannot eat from anywhere else. And then by the first one of the first Shabbosim in uh, Fahrenheit, the Kleisenberger Rebbe had a tish, and he decided to give. Shirayim to Lieutenant Birnbaum in thanks uh, for, for everything that he was doing and helping the survivors and helping the, assisting the Kleisenberger Rebbe with getting religious articles and everything that he needed. He gave Shirayim first, one of the first people he, he distributed to was, was Lieutenant Birnbaum. And Rojo, this uh, Native American, uh, saw that, he's, that, that, that someone else is giving food to his lieutenant. So he whacks the spoon away from the Kleisenberger Rebbe and says, no one gives uh, food to my lieutenant. He eats only kosher and only kosher. No, he doesn't eat from anyone else. And the Kleisenberg Rebbe, of course, didn't understand uh, what he said. So he turns to Lieutenant Birnbaum and said, "Was hat the gesagt? What did that crazy person say?" And uh, and Lieutenant Birnbaum said, "No, it's not a crazy person. He's my sergeant, and he's just making sure I eat kosher." And he explained to Rojo that the Kleisenberg Rebbe's food is also kosher, um, but. Uh, he, uh, Birnbaum assisted the Kleisenberger Rebbe and was witness to the great uh, heroism of, and leadership of the Kleisenberger Rebbe to the survivors. And the survivors were known at that time as the She'eris Apleta. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and he actually, uh, the Kleisenberger Rebbe establishes an organization, uh, a movement, literally, uh, uh, called, the name, the name was She'eris Apleta. Um, and he starts building institutions, a yeshiva, uh, um, a, a, a Beis Yaakov, a mikvah, uh, getting from the American army to get safarim and, and kosher food and, 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 and before sukkahs to get uh, uh, lulav and esrig, a complete religious infrastructure. And he literally becomes a father to survivors. In another episode on the DP camps, I said a story about him and, the, uh, and, the, and how he gave a blessing to all the uh, orphaned girls uh, um, in, in the camp. A very moving and powerful story um, that I related on the uh, epi- recent episode of, of, of the Displaced Persons Camps. And these activities were more as a religious leader than as a Hasidic rabbi, because he was, it was simply to rebuild Yiddishkeit in the DP camps and to instill hope into the broken survivors that Jewish life can be renewed. And this was all I remind you, despite his own devastating personal losses of his family, of his community, of everything that he had. Um, he gave an incredible speech on the night of Yom Kippur, the first Yom Kippur after liberation. It was the Kol Nidre speech. And the... The, uh, and I want to give the context to his speech. He later said one time later in his life that many of the survivors that he encountered in the DP camp shortly after liberation had lost all faith and felt that Jewish life was over. 
When he established a shul with the assistance of American military authorities, many of the Jewish survivors in the DP camps complain that he's going to cause another Hitler type of enemy to come if Jewish life continues again. And when he arranged Jewish wedding ceremonies for survivors with a chuppah, there were survivors who threw stones at them. Now the way I understand it, my personal understanding, is that it was not so much anti-religious antagonism, but rather an expression of the recent trauma they had been through, and 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 they were they were traumatized, and it wasn't so much a, a pre you know a, a faction that was anti-religious, but just an expression of trauma. But he persevered and persevered, and he and he uh, continues. And in that context, we have to see his Kondre speech. He gives this incredible speech that if he didn't give it and it wasn't um, written down afterwards by people who had witnessed it and heard it, it would be hard to believe that a Hasidic Rebbe could give such a speech. He said uh, he lit- he opened the Machzer of Yom Kippur and he starts going through the Vidu, Yashamnu, Bagadnu, and he says, who wrote this Machzer? This is not written for us. We're not guilty of any of the sins that are written in this machzer, that in this vidui. What are we guilty of? Gazalnu, did we steal from anyone? Who do we steal from in, in Mildorf and in Auschwitz? And, 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 and Bagadnu, who did we betray? And he goes through literally one after another and he says, this vidui is not for us and this machzer is not for us and he closes the machzer and he says, but we're guilty of something else. And we have another vidui that we, the survivors, the Sha'iris Aplata have to have to do tshuva for and come back. And he says, because we are guilty of having given up and lost our faith. How many times did we give up? How many times did we say, I have no strength to get up tomorrow? How many times did we say, I don't want to wake up in the morning? I don't want to say Maidaani again. I want to give up. I had enough. How many times did we doubt? And how many times did we have questions? And we have to pray and do tshuva and try to come back to God. To try to come to believe in Him again. To try to trust in Him again. And that's what we, our goal is for this Yom Kippur. And that's, and that's how He inspired these people. Um, and, uh, and he was also, uh, it had an impact on several other DP camps in the general area of the American zone of, of occupation in Germany. Uh, he had lost everything and everyone, but he w- and he had gone through several camps, and now he throws himself into rebuilding and inspiring others. Survivors become very attached to him as a result. And uh, for the rest of his life, he lived in the shadow of the Holocaust. He constantly spoke about it, rebuilding. Every decision he subsequently took was a result of his experiences as a survivor, and we can say that with a certain measure of certainty. So he went about his rebuilding with the charisma of a Hasidic Rebbe, the leadership of a community rabbi, the religious leadership of a Talmud Chacham and a Paisik, as an educator and as a teacher of Torah, as a visionary and with the moral conviction of someone who had experienced the horrors of the Holocaust with a deep faith in God and able to inspire and invigorate others with a sense of mission, all the while remaining independent of others and taking his own path. It didn't matter to him that others disagreed with the path he was taking. Um, he went uh, first to the United States. He, he visited the United States in 1946 and established institutions for survivors in the U.S. and even in Mexico. Interestingly enough, I don't know what happened to those institutions in Mexico. And then he moves to the U.S. in 1949, and he actually declared that I'm moving to the land of Israel by way of America. And he saw it as a temporary. He remarries the daughter of the Nitra Rav, Rebetzin Chaya Nechama Ungar, uh, second wife after his first wife was killed. 
And I heard personally. I heard this story from a uh, a, a fellow who grew up in in Seattle or, or somewhere in the uh, in the uh, Pacific Northwest. I believe it was Seattle, one, one of those cities up there. Maybe it was Oregon. I don't remember. And the, he told me. I heard this uh, from him that his parents had sent him to study in the Yeshiva Tarvadas in Williamsburg. And uh, one day, it was in the 1940s, he is told by one of the Rebbe's in Tarvadas, there's a Hasidic Rebbe, and this, this fellow came from a Lithuanian home, his parents were immigrants from Vabolnik in Lithuania, the same town that Roshach uh, came from, and, uh, and he, um, so he was a, completely, a complete Litvak, and here his Rebbe in, in Tarvadas told him, there's a Hasidic Rebbe who is a survivor of the Holocaust who had just arrived recently in New York, and he's making a tish, they rented out a, 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 a some sort of uh, hall where he's going to be uh, presiding over a Hasidic tish, and there's really no one to come, and he doesn't have really much of an audience, and uh, he doesn't really have any followers, so it would be a big kindness and a big chesed uh, to go, if some yeshiva guys in Tarvadas would go to, to be mechazakim, to give him some uh, strength, and that the people attend, that he has a an audience. So he said, okay, fine, you know, he, he's a Hasidic rabbi, and he had gone through the Holocaust, so we, we should all do this uh, favor for him. And they go in, and they literally thought that they were doing the biggest chesed in the world. I'm telling you as this person told me the story. And because there was no one there. It was an empty room. And it was just these few yeshiva guys and a couple of other stragglers. And they came in, and the Kloisenberger rabbi spoke with a passion, as if he was in Madison Square Garden with thousands of people there. And he spoke of a vision. He said, and he enumerated specifics. He didn't speak in, in abstract and, 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 and mystical and Kabbalistic talk. And He didn't do that. He said, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to build a yeshiva. I'm going to build a community in Israel. I'm going to build a kolel. I'm going to build a hospital. I'm going to build this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. This is what we're going to do. We're going to rebuild Yiddishkeit. And you know what this fellow told me? He said, we looked at each other and we said, poor guy, he's been through a lot and he went through this trauma and he's delusional. And uh, look at him, it's sad. It's kind of sad that he thinks, you know. And, but they were quiet and they respected him. And he said, let me tell you something. Every single thing that he said at that tish that night, he built. Not one thing was missing. This man had a vision and he went ahead and actually pulled through and built every single thing that he did. And it was all set in 1945, 1946, 49, whenever he came, sorry, in the late 1940s, he, he had it all set. He had it all planned out. And he actually went ahead and did every single thing. Amazing, amazing story. Um, he goes ahead and he eventually moves to Israel. He, he rebuilds there as well. In fact, there was a he, uh, he changes his his stance. Uh, he had been, um, you know, he had been married to Teitelbaum, and he'd been part of that world and very extreme and anti-Zionist uh, stance before the war. And uh, and in, in something changed, it modified. He not not did not become uh, a Zionist, not by any definition of the term. Far far from it. He definitely remained uh, very. Separate and very, uh, you know, in, in many ways, very conservative, very, uh, very uh, uh, strong in his views. Uh, but there was something that changed, something that because of the Holocaust that he uh, that he uh, that changed and actually led him into dispute with his uncle, the Satmarov, 
Um, it was between him and his uncles. Williamsburg was other reasons also. You know, they were nearby in Williamsburg. There was tension and tensions rose. And then when he spent the Shabbos in Yerushalayim later in the 1970s, so there was actually violence in the streets of Yerushalayim. The Kleisenberger followers and the Satmar followers, there was fights by the mikvah. And, and it was a, there was, they wrote up signs against the Kleisenberger Rebbe and his Hasidim tore down the signs, a whole kind of tragic story um, and dispute. But he goes ahead and he builds Kiryat Sanz and Netanya, the cornerstone laying in 1956, when he was still officially living in the United States. And it was the first Hasidic community in a development town, which was a big statement to not be doing it in Yerushalayim or Tel Aviv or B'nai Brak, where most rabbis were at the time. But he eventually settles in Israel in 1960. But he went back and forth a couple of times. He moved back to the United States later on. Uh, he met with leading Torah leaders in Israel. But also, and this was shocking to many, he meets with, with the Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. And later on with Levi Eshkol. He was a novelty. He was one of the only leading rebbes in the world who had actually gone through the camps. And uh, because he had modified his stance on Zionism, on the state of Israel, and uh, and on his leadership in the post-war, in his role as leader of survivors and in rebuilding, uh, so therefore he, he kind of led, forged this independent path, this dialectic of, of, of kind of, uh, of, of in both worlds. And he starts building institutions, not only religious ones, but social ones. He establishes orphanages, old age homes, and then also his shaskal. He builds the mifal hashas to have going through shas. The, the, his, his, his approach to his derech halimut, his style of learning, was go through shas, learn bekiyas, learn, study as much, cover as much ground as you could, finish shas, become proficient and get knowledgeable in it, and then you'll be and then you'll, you'll be a big Talmud Chacham. And he, he fought for it. He built it. He was an architect. He, he expanded. He made it into a movement, literally. He would distribute money and stipends to it and, and, and open more branches. And it continues till today. Educational institutions. He opened the yeshiva in Netanya and Kiryat Sanz, which, where he was the Rosh Yeshiva. He delivered regular classes and, and shiurim in this yeshiva. He even built the first Hasidic ultra-Orthodox hotel in the world, to the best of my knowledge, in Kiryat Sanz in Netanya, Galei Sanz. And then the hospital. The story of the hospital is fascinating, and we don't have time, um, excuse me, to go into it now. Uh, so I'll just give a basic uh, uh, overview, because we're ready over time here. Um, after years of planning and bureaucracy, he dedicated the hospital in 1975. And then when he, a few years later, when he, they dedicated the second building of the hospital, he said in a speech why he built the hospital. He said in one of the camps he was in, he was bleeding from a wound he received. It seems like it was a gunshot wound or a beating. Um, and he's bleeding. And he was afraid he would bleed to death. And he found a leaf. And he tied a leaf around the wound to stop the bleeding with a twig from, from a tree. And he, at that time, he made a vow that one day, if he survives, he would build a hospital that would heal people, that would be dedicated to healing people, to giving life, to providing life, and would provide top medical care, and that the doctors and staff would know that there's a God in the world and that they're carrying out an exalted mission by preserving life. And it would be a hospital built and functioning on the principles of the Torah, Halacha, and human compassion. And it's still... Serves that mission until today, the Laniato Hospital. When the first child was born in Laniato Hospital, he was in the United States, and he asked that the crying baby be put on the phone so that he could hear the cries of this newborn baby. 
And he started to cry himself that this is his victory against the Nazis. And that Shabbos in, 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 his, in his shul, he made a Shalom Zacher for that baby by his tish to celebrate that, that the, 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 the hospital is built and bringing life into the world. And the, the significance that a Rebbe, Hasidic Rebbe, is building a hospital, probably the first time in Jewish history. In history, He uh, builds a community in Union City, New Jersey. Um, he wrote Sfarim, Shafachayim, Divrei Yatsev, and, uh, and uh, just one last point, if we'll say that there is something he said uh, about his community in Netanya, uh, his Kiryat sons, that, that the, the, the customs of the community go according to what the what customs were in Galicia and sons. Why? Because the rabbi of the community, the Mara da Asra, is the Divrei Chaim. We're rebuilding Galicia. The way he saw it is that he's rebuilding Galicia, and therefore the customs of the community, they daven late, they go according to Rabbeinu Tam. He even said that his greatest accomplishment in life, and this is someone who accomplished quite a bit, uh, like I said, Mifala Shas and, 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 and Laniato Hospital and the Yeshiva and, and survivors and everything, he said the greatest accomplishment I had was establishing that Rabbeinu Tam can exist in Israel. And, 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 and he's, he's independent of, of what the official custom in Israel is. And he does in his community, he builds it in his own way. And, uh, and he's able to, to keep Galicia and the Rechaim and, and uh, the Rabbeinu Tam custom alive. And there's a lot to talk about that uh, also. So perhaps in uh, one day when we get to part two, we'll speak a little bit more about what he meant by that. But his greatest accomplishment was, uh, having the, the Zman Rabbeinu Tam as, his, as, 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 uh, as the custom in, in Kiryat Sons and, and how we see that in the wider context of the rebuilding of the Haredi community in Israel after the war and, uh, and also in his other uh, stories of during the Holocaust and in DP camps and his rebuilding. There's definitely a lot more to say and we'll get back to that. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, lectures, and sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.